Good afternoon, church. My name is Brett. I am pastor of this people. It's good to see all of you, but especially those who are with us for the first time. Thanks for coming and making us your church home for an hour today. Well, we're going to continue with our series on faith to move forward, and this is the last in the series. Next week, I will be preaching about Thanksgiving, and then following that, we'll be doing a series on the fruit of the Spirit. Turn with me over to the book of Mark. The title of the message today is Faith to Move Forward, Going to the Other Side. Faith to Move Forward, Going to the Other Side. Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. It says, on that day when Jesus, excuse me, on that day when evening had come, he said to them, let's go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd, they took him along with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And there arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. Jesus himself was in the stern, asleep on a cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he got up and rebuked the wind and the sea, and, excuse me, the wind, and said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down, and it became, and it became perfectly calm. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? Verse 40. Do you still have no faith? And they became very much afraid and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Lord, help as we study your word today. Four things in this passage I'd like to talk to you about. One, late in the day instructions. Two, what it means to leave the present reality in which you find yourself. Three, lie down. And four, live with faith. The context is that Jesus has been teaching the crowds for a good period of time. It may have been days, we're not quite sure, but we do know that it was at least all day. And the people were following him for various reasons, most of whom thought they could maybe get another free meal, 5,000 fed with five loaves and two fish. Not a bad deal if you can get Jesus to help you with your food. Others may have had issues with respect to their health. People who desperately needed assistance. Everybody had a need. Some may have come for some more pure motives than just getting their needs met. Some may have been avid followers and were really interested in the person of Christ. I think the disciples may have fit in that category more than any other, yet even their motives were questionable. Most of them were hoping that Jesus would do something really special and therefore take them to wherever he was going. If he's the Messiah going to sit on a throne, well, maybe he'll put me in a cabinet position. I can be Secretary of State, Minister of Defense, Chief of Staff. Jesus will take me wherever he's going if I stay close enough. I'm not quite sure anybody had pure motives when they signed up to follow Christ. But they're not unlike us, huh? I mean, when we sign up to follow him, generally, we're not coming just to worship. The initial prompt probably was, I need help. I'm in a situation out of which I cannot get, and I need more than me to deliver me. We all come on the basis of need. Nothing wrong with that, but we shouldn't stay there. Worship demands that we concentrate on our responsibility to serve him, not on his responsibility to serve us. The crowds, for the most part, were living at a base level, hoping that Jesus would do something for them. Prove to us that you are worthy 
of our attention. Miracles, food, words. And Jesus said to the disciples, in the midst of this kind of false adulation, let's go to the other side. And it says that he said this late in the day. So late in the day instructions. I have found that God is, is always on time with whatever he has done in my life. Always. But I never perceived it as such. In the middle of it, I always thought he was late. Always. There's never a time when he's been early. I've always been waiting on something that I thought needed to happen yesterday. Or the day before, or the day before that, and I'm still waiting. When are you going to come through for me, oh God? I'm saying this not by way of, of any, any kind of, 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 of patting on the back. I'm just being transparent. That's where I live. Usually the instruction that he gives me about what I need to do and where I need to go seems to be a little late. His provision doesn't seem to be on my timetable, and he has never asked me about when would you like this bread? He's never inquired of me once because my timetable is not his. My ways are not his. And so I find myself always trying to struggle with the idea of, okay, I'm grateful for your provision, but you know, you, I perceive it as being just a little late. Just, just, I, I, I'm great, I'm not mad, but if you'd done it yesterday, that would have been even better. But hey, good. Perspective allows us a privilege of growing up and understanding some things that we would not otherwise. And if you don't have perspective, you will never judge how God deals with you properly. We as a congregation have been in existence for 36 years, and I am grateful to God for every one of those days. I've been here since the beginning. Every one of those 36, 36 years of, of worship and praise and trying to figure out what church should look like, I've been here. I became senior pastor in 1991. When I came here in 1982, I was 21 years old, tasked with the responsibility of reaching out to Howard University. Others were tasked with other campuses, and we would bring our students together and do church on Sunday morning. Mark Koch was my pastor. He was 10 years my senior and 10 years after we got going, he felt like he needed to do something else. He then asked me to take the church, a church which uh, wasn't a very happy church. We'd been through some difficulty. And by the time I got it, when they gave me the steering wheel, I had 53 people, most of whom did not want to be there. They were only there because they felt sorry for me. <laughs> I'm not exaggerating. Some of them are still here, and you can ask them. It was not a pretty time. After the first year... Of my pastorate, we still had 53 people, but it was a different 53. The next year, we got to 75. The year after that, about 95. The Lord seemed to be blessing, not because we were so good at what we did. We just didn't quit. And I was wondering, Lord, here we are in about 1995. We still don't have a house. We were a wandering people, having been in 33 different locations to do worship, basements of churches, community centers, elementary schools, junior high schools, high schools, you name it, we met in it, backyards, because the, the hotel one Sunday 
said, oops, we double booked, you're not here. That happened at 6 a.m. on a Sunday as we were putting up our equipment, bringing it to the hotel. They said, no, you're not here today. That's a little insecure when you're trying to build a church when people don't know where you're going to be. And there is no text in 1984. <laughs> 33 different locations. And here I am, senior pastor, trying to figure out how to get my church a piece of property. There were people, my, friends of mine, who had come and established churches in the area after me. They had buildings before me. <laughs> Lord, how... How, how else do you want to, to define failure in my life? This, this doesn't help me with credibility in the community that I've actually got a congregation but they, that pastor can't find a home for. And it was not for lack of looking. I searched. I mean, I searched. Wore realtors out. Came along somewhere in the neighborhood of 2000 or so. We found a piece of property over on Pleasant Valley Road in Chantilly, right down the street on 50 at the border of Fairfax County and Loudoun County. Nine acres, we bought it. It was a piece of property, though. You can only build on half of it because it was slotted commercial slash residential, and you have to keep 50% of that property green. So you really only had four and a half acres. And upon that four and a half acres, you had to put parking and your building, which meant you could only build a building of 600 seats because you had to have one to four in terms of parking to people ratio, Carter people ratio. So it was going to be a small building. And by the time we get to, got to the place where we had enough resources to be able to put it together, <laughs> I told the church, um, the property's too small and the building's too small that we're going to put on it. So uh, that which I told you was really the will of God, I don't think is anymore. <laughs> you talk about leadership equity burned. That was tough. But I was prompted, not, not by the word of the Lord, though I thought it was. I wasn't trying to be self-willed. But I was motivated by an insecurity that needed to be fed by defining myself other than the will of God. And so I wanted a piece of property. Because I thought God was late, but I was just early. It was way too early. So we sold it. Made all of our money back that we put in it to try to develop it. And we were on the search again. I got a flyer in my mailbox about this water park in Chantilly. $349 for the entire summer to bring your whole family. Now we were their worst nightmare. <laughs> Seven kids. I, it didn't take much to calculate. $16 a pop to get in the gate. Seven is 105. Three times, and I'm pretty much paid. Gosh, let's make this happen. So I bought a pass. Came in June. All nine of us, my wife and, and the kids, and we made up half of the population of the park. <laughs> I'm thinking, where are the people? It's June, it's 90 degrees. Where are the people? Uh, bad day. Come back the next week. Same thing. I said, this guy can't be making any money on this. So I got my realtor in my church. I said, go ask him if he wants to sell. He said, yes, I do. Worked out a price that was really good. 
And we bought this piece of property. Now, having just come off the leadership equity that I spent in trying to tell people that we have the will of God in a piece of property, and then, up, oh, sorry, I blew it. I'm now coming to them saying, by the way, we just bought a water park. <laughs> My leadership was behind me, though they thought I was a little nuts. And the people in the congregation were not shy about how I was using their money. You bought a what? With, with our, you bought a what? What, what are we going to do with a, a water park? I said, I know it sounds bad. I get it. I get it. But just hang in here with me. There have been businessmen that have tried to buy this from under us for double for what we paid for it. On 28, road frontage. One of only two buildings on all of the whole road that actually have signs, Walmart and us. Arguably the most enviable property for a church in all of the county. Pastors ask me, how did you get that? And the only thing I can tell them is this. The one virtue in my acquisition of goals is that I just didn't quit. I made a bunch of bad decisions. A bunch of mistakes. It's not because I'm so competent, that's for sure. I just stayed on the road until I intersected with the provision God had planned for me. I didn't exit too early. <clears throat> Listen to me. Everybody would, would say that I got late in the day instructions. 25 years before we ever had property in which we could meet. That's fairly late in a church's life. But I'm so grateful. He said, get in this boat. Get in this boat. And I promise you, you get in this boat, I'm going to take you someplace you can't get on your own. Get in this boat. Yes, sir. Not because I'm so good. It's not because I'm competent. It's not because I'm a good businessman. It has nothing to do with that. The only virtue that could really be ascribed to me is that I just didn't quit. And if you don't quit and you do what he says, he'll cover your mistakes. He'll blot out your sin. He'll propel you faster in your purpose than you ever thought possible. You'll just wind up one day thinking, how did I get here? And all the pain of that which you had to go, had to go through, just kind of fades. It's kind of like what the Bible says when a woman gives birth to a child that she forgets the labor. I don't know if that's as true for most people as, as, as when Paul wrote it, though, it, though it's true. I mean, the pain doesn't stop you. That's the point. The joy of birth makes you think it was worth it and I'd do it again. That's what this feels like. And I'm just sharing my story. This is not the best story. There are many other congregations that have better stories. But this is ours. Late in the day instructions. God was on time. He was on time. I was way early. And he was mercifully kind to us as a people.
But he said, let's, let's get in the boat because we're going to the other side. Now, he invited them with him. That's a really good thing, y'all. I mean, I just want you to reflect for a moment. The God of the universe thought enough of you to give a personal invitation to accompany him to go someplace you could not get on your own. Wow. You ought to feel really special. And you need to keep that feeling of specialness on the inside of you and, and continually reverberating because that is intended to be somewhat of a security when you go through the difficult times of realizing he invited me. Secondly, he said we're going to the other side. He's taking me someplace that I probably couldn't get without him. And so I'm grateful. Not only does he want me to be with him, but he actually wants to deliver me to my destiny. He wants to make sure I get there. God, you are something. You need those two things in tow because the middle part is like horrible. Getting in the boat knowing you've got an invitation is fabulous. Feeling the sense that he's taking you someplace because he said we're going to the other side is even a booster rocket to your fabulousness. But you're going to need all of that because in the middle, it's going to feel like nothing that he said matters. You're going to get the sense of fear like you've never had before and questioning, why did I get in this boat? Do you care about me? It's really bad here. I thought you were, 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 were really working with me here. I'm laboring on my own. Where are you, oh God? All those questions will go through your brain. If not, come out of your mouth. You need to hold on to the fact that he invited you and he told you. We're going to the other side. When you leave, though, it's, sometimes it's a little bit of a painful leaving because you have, you have, you have to leave the present reality. You need, you need to depart, first of all, from the crowd. The crowd will tell you this. You know, just slow down. You really don't have to go that far. This fanatical idea, this, just do church on Sunday. You, you don't have to go to prayer meeting midweek. You don't have to go to small group. Listen, you can be a Christian and just, just take it easy. Nobody's going to be mad at you about that. You don't have to be all radical and stuff. And you know you're trying to lead a Bible study in the workplace. And you don't even hang with us anymore. I mean, when we go to happy hour, you're sad. This didn't work. I'm just thinking we're not, we're not, we're not boys like we used to be. You know, the crew thing, it seems to be dissolving because you just don't. You don't do what you used to do with this. You don't say what you used to say. You don't think like, what's happened to you? Can't you just? The crowd will always try to bring you back. And you've got to separate yourself from the crowd. Now, I'm not saying separate yourself from people. Because those people need the influence that Christ wants to exert through your life for them to get right. But you have to separate yourself from what they do and how they think and how they are. Because you can't do that anymore, you can't think that way, and you can't be that way. You've got to separate yourself. And, 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 and you've got to make sure that when Jesus, he invited you with him, he said, let's go. Let's get in the boat and go to the other side. You've got to make sure that you bring him with you. 
And he's coming as he is. He's not coming the way you want him. He's not coming co-stamping your plan about how to get there. He's not asking you about when. He's not asking you what journey would you like to take. Would you like to take a detour to the left? I'm your tour guide today. That's not happening. You take him as he is. And, and, and the writer, Mark here, really makes great pains to go through the detail to say, and they brought him in the boat as he was. You can't change him to fit you. You're coming in on his idea about what life should look like. And you better take him with you. Please take him with you. Don't just take the invitation and leave him on the shore thinking that you can get to the other side just as easy without him. Take him with you. Now you say, well, wait a minute. Now you can do the will of God and not have Jesus with you? Yep. Moses was trying to bring the people out of Egypt and into the promised land. That was his goal. He was stuck in the middle, though, in this wilderness. And it was, it was kind of a moment where the people weren't doing very well. And that was pretty normal. So I guess those moments were continual in the wilderness. And God was having a conversation with Moses about how the people were obstinate. He told God, Exodus 33, 34, I think I need to let you all go. Because if I go with you, these people are so obstinate, I will probably kill them on the way. So it's better that my presence does not accompany you. But I care for you, so I'm going to send you an angel. And this angel will accompany you, and he will fight for you, and he will guide you, and he will lead you, and it'll be great. And you'll get into the promised land, you'll, you'll make your way. And Moses said, um, you know, I didn't sign up just to reach my goals. Promised land wasn't, I mean, it's important, but it wasn't a, it wasn't a big thing for me. My thing is I want to be with you. I want your presence. What is to distinguish us from all the other peoples on the earth except that you are with us? I need you. And if I don't have you, I'm not going. God kind of looked at Moses and said, huh, that's what I was looking for right there. But most people, thank you, Lord, for my promotion. Thank you, Lord, for my raise. Thank you for my corner office, God. Did you go through the process of inquiring of him about how to get there? Or did you just praise him that you got there? Was he with you the entire way? Did you worship him along the way? Or did you compromise some things in order to get what you got? And thought, well, I'll justify it by offering some more money because I got a raise. You want to make sure Jesus is in the boat with you every moment. He invited you, you bring him with you. And <clears throat> make sure that you put up your sails. No motorboats back then. Now, let me show you what, what they did have. On the screen is a replica of the boat that was uh, used by Jesus, we believe, and, and the disciples. Um, back in 1986, there was a drought in Israel, and the Sea of Galilee went down to historically low levels. The Sea of Galilee is only 200 feet deep at its deepest. This was found near the shore as the water levels de de descended. Um, but not this particular boat, obviously. It didn't look that good. The remnants of a boat. And from that boat, they were able to construct things that looked like this. And they now call this, which is a reconstruction of the of the fragments that they found, they found a hull under the water. 
They were able to reconstruct this, and they called this the Jesus boat. Why? Because when they took the radiocarbon from the uh, radiocarbon dating from the boat they found under the water, it dated to the first century A.D. Now, no, no clue whether this was the, there were there were dozens of boats that were fishermen boats out there. So we have no idea who used this, but we do know that this is probably like the boat they used. So what we see here is that. No motorboats, but they did have sails. You don't put up the sail, you don't move. I, I don't, I'm not trying to insult your intelligence. But you don't put up the sail, you don't move, because you're dependent on wind. You need to make sure you put up your sail spiritually so that the Holy Spirit can blow in it. Yes. So you know you need to pray, but do you? Better hoist up that sail. You better pray. Unfold it so that the Holy Spirit's got something to work with. You know you need to read your Bible every day. But do you? Give God something to work with. Take sail. Put it up. Do the right thing so he can partner with you in your progress. Don't just be dependent upon his mercy and grace to propel you where you need to go. Please work with him in this stuff. So that when you are walking, it's as if he is walking with you and moving each step a little bit further than you could on your own. Not unlike those conveyor belts we find in the airport. There are not enough of them in whatever airport you go to. Not enough. Those, those moving walkways, they need them all over. They need them all over. I fly too much. But when you get on it, you're walking the same as you would if you weren't, but you're moving faster. If you stand there, you're basically allowing whatever momentum is found in the belt to propel you. It's good. But if you walk with the belt, then you move faster and get to your destination quicker. Work with God in this. Walk with him. Give him something to blow into. Pray. Worship. Come to Wednesday night. Go to small group. Tie yourself to some people. Figure out how to do relationships well. Love folks like God love you. Give God something to into. After you've left the crowd, then it's important to make sure that you do right when the difficulty comes. Now, it says that they, they went out. Ah, I forgot one thing. Hold on. It says they went out, but they didn't go out alone. Not only do you need to take Jesus with you, but you need to take me with you. And I'm speaking figuratively. You need to take people. It says they went out and other boats with them. There are people God's called you to walk with that you need to arrive at your destiny with as well. I have been privileged uh, since I got born again in 1981, I've walked basically with the same human beings my entire Christian life. Rice Brooks, Phil Bonasso, Steve Merle. These are guys, we were in our 20s, barely knew what we were doing, but we loved God. Probably made more mistakes than we had successes, but we stayed in the boat together. And yes, there have been times when all of us wanted to jump ship. 
And there have been times when we wanted to push people overboard. <laughs> but we decided to stay. And after 37 years of walking with these men, I'm really happy because we've arrived at one shore after another together. Together. And now there's no reason for us ever to leave one another because we've already given one another all the greatest reasons to do so. And we still stayed. You want to make sure that you're, you're, you're in the right company and you don't just jettison relationships because it got inconvenient and hard. Remember, people are difficult. It's hard enough just between you and Jesus. But that's hard because you're messed up, not because he's got issues. You got issues. It's hard because you're always trying to... But then you involve other people that don't treat you well, don't speak to you well, say bad things on the internet about you, blast you on social media, don't have your consideration in mind. I mean, you know those people. And as you're thinking about that person, the face is coming to your mind right now that I just described. Remember, the person that you're thinking about is putting your face on those words. We all have issues with one another. And the most important thing is that we deal with us, not ask God to deal with them. God gives us a beautiful tool belt that's got love and patience and kindness and goodness and meekness and self-control, joy. And this tool belt is the thing that we need to show up with at every relational job site to which we come. But most folk don't come with a tool belt. They're just hoping it works out. Hope it just works. I hope I find somebody I can really float with. And when you do, you feel really good until their Adam comes out, their Eve comes out. And then you rethink the whole thing. Maybe they aren't what I thought they ought to be to me. And so then you find another relational site, another place you need to go in order to find new friends. And you find somebody else you can really float with. And then you get down the road and all of a sudden something happens and you think, well, maybe they're not the relationship I thought I was supposed to have. Maybe. And the problem is this. You. You are, taking, you are taking yourself into every relationship. You can't leave you. And God is trying to deal with you about who you are to them, not who they are to you. And so if you continue to go through this cycle of trying to figure out where is my perfect fit? Where is my soulmate? What you have to do is become the right person rather than look for the right person. And when you find the, the person who you think was a right person and then they become the wrong person, it's only the mirror that you see. <laughs> it's only the mirror. They're just holding it up to you because the frustration is building on the inside of your soul is ungodly. The anger you feel is unrighteous. And the only reason you are able to see it is because they're in your life. If it was all good, you wouldn't know it's there. So what you need to do is give them a big hug. I don't like you. You're a horrible person. I wish you weren't here. But thank you. Because now I know what I need to get rid of. I'm grateful to God because I can get delivered to the selfishness. Oh, you who don't think you're selfish, just get married. 
And then have ba- don't have babies. Don't do that. You you won't re- you, you 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 think you like sleep. You don't know how much you love sleep when you have babies. Everything changes the closer you get to somebody. Everything changes. And they are your mirror, not your problem. I've been privileged to stay in the same boat again. I just haven't quit. It's the only virtue that could be ascribed to Brett. When you're all in the same boat, Jesus knows exactly what's going to happen on the way. He understands it. And there is a storm that comes out of no place. Unpredictable. Sudden. And you're thinking, I didn't plan for this. What are we going to do? And it's so strong that it's threatening your life. The only way you can describe it is, I don't know how I'm going to get through this storm unless I have a miracle. I might die. This is what the disciples were saying. A fierce gale. And these were seasoned fishermen. They knew what the Sea of Galilee provided. They knew the dangers of it. The Sea of Galilee is 680 feet below sea level. And they have mountains adjacent to it of 2,000 feet high. And when those mountains that have cool air begin to have a wind that comes over them and dumps it down into the Sea of Galilee, which has the water, which is warm, all of a sudden, you can get a squall out of no place. And these disciples know these things can happen, but they've never experienced anything like this. And now they are bailing as fast as they can, but more water's coming in than they can put out. And they are fearful of their lives. But where's Jesus? Point three. Lie down. Because your bailing isn't going to work anyway. When things get really, really bad, you can bail as much as you want. But generally speaking, there's more water in than you can put out. And Jesus seems to be uncaring because he's not helping you bail. The disciples are sitting there working as hard as they can to save their lives. And what is Jesus doing? He is asleep in the hull of the boat. And they're sitting there. I mean, they're bailing. And they're saying. (laughs) Finally, Peter says, do you not care that we are perishing? He didn't just say, could you help, please? There are a lot of bad things you can say to God, all of which he will forgive. But that's one of the worst. Do you not care? Do you not care? You're boiling down all that I have said and done for you to a five-minute moment that is extremely difficult for you in trying to define my care for you? We are too often like like three-year-olds. I don't know if your parents have done this. You you probably have. You You go to the grocery store and you go to the checkout aisle. And there are Skittles right there. I mean, within reach of the three-year-old. They do this on purpose. 
They do this on purpose. In reach. And, 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 and mama, mama says, we're not doing that. And the three-year-old feels life ebbing from him. His world is falling apart. Nothing is right. Nothing will ever be right again. Temper tantrums flare, screaming and hollering. Nobody cares about him at all. And nobody ever has. That's all he knows. His life is defined by exiting giant with Skittles. And if he does not, he has the worst parents ever. <laughs> no perspective on been fed every day of his life, clothed, provided for every day of his life had his parents not been attentive. Would have been disastrous for him. And yet care was given but he has no perspective. His whole life centers around a bag of skittles. Dear three-year-olds, don't define God on your present storm. Don't do that. That bus that did not hit you yesterday is because of his grace. That sickness that did not come upon you is because of his grace. His hand has been on your life, all your life. And that is the only reason you are still breathing. And if he never, if he never, if he never did another thing for you, it's enough that he sent his son so that you don't have to live forever apart from him. It's enough. So when you go through your difficult moment, I beg you, never imply, do you care? Jesus got up, looked at the winds and the storm. This is Brett's version of what he said. Shh. Hush, be still. The winds immediately stopped. And the seas became immediately calm. I tell you, Jesus' words are heavy. Heavy. They have impact now. The disciples were amazed. Who is this that even the seas and the wind obey him? We knew he was something, but we didn't know he was this version of something. Wow. But see... Everything that has been created was created through him. And the things that have been created have been created by his word. So it's not unusual that when he speaks, that the things that have been created by his word now would respond to his word. Power is in his word. That's why you need to get his word to be your word. Because your words don't have that kind of power. That's why you need to get in your Bible and you need to read it every day so you know what his word says so that when you speak, you speak as an emissary of heaven. And when you say, those words are now heard as if they are God's and your storms stop. But what it's going to require is this. 
No panicking. No fear. I know everything within you wants to start bailing, but it's not going to help. Get up there in Jesus' blanket and fall asleep with him. Just lie down. I know it's counterintuitive. Doesn't make any sense. Just lie down. I'm not saying be inactive. What I'm saying is don't let fear grip your soul. Be still, knowing that God's got this. Why? Remember what, what I told you to hold on to in the beginning? What did he say? We are going where? What does the storm have to do with what he said? What does the storm have to do with what he said? If you know what he said, hop in the blanket with him. And if he goes down, you go down with him. But you know he's coming back up, so he's going to bring you with him. Trust him through the storm. Trust him through the storm. You trust him. Which leads to my next point. Live with faith. Don't let your storm define your life. Don't let it define your relationship with God. Don't let it define your present circumstances. What the storm does is it lets you know how your faith ought to respond now. You simply know what the intensity level is. And you know at what level you need to to, to ratchet up your belief and say, okay, I get it. This thing is buffeting me. I can barely breathe, but I trust you, God. I believe you're going to bring me through this. And somehow or another, what you said in the beginning about us getting to the other side, I'm going to get there if I don't jump out of the boat. If I don't quit, if I stay here, I'm going to intersect with all the provision you had in mind when you said, we're going to the other side. You don't quit. And you hold on to what he said. And you'll wind up at your destination faster than you ever thought possible. And with excellent lessons to be able to take to the next circumstance and say, I saw God do this. If he did it there, he'll do it here. Daddy, I love you. Thank you for your goodness and grace. Empower us, please, to be the kind of people who can live the way we should and believe you in the midst of circumstances that seem impossible.